0: You're listening to Houston, we have a podcast where we talk everything and anything, movies and their reviews, and this is episode 7. Hey everybody, Show here. Welcome to Houston, we have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I. That's S N S S-N-S-A-L-L-I. Sometimes it takes a wedding. Everybody in their places. No, 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 this isn't the groom. To figure out who to marry. Do you take this man? Ariel Kevill, Andrew Walker, Jacqueline Smith, Bridal Wave, a Hallmark Channel original movie. So in the last episode of the podcast, I did the whole Hallmark Christmas movie things. And so just to give you a quick recap, if you skipped that part, which is fair, I mean, not everyone's interested in that. It was announced earlier this year, I think back in June, that Hallmark was releasing 32 new original Christmas movies. And... A few days ago, maybe last week it was announced that that movie was that number was actually being upped to thirty three now, I read some of the descriptions uh the synopses, let's say of these Christmas movies on the last podcast, and I love them i'm not not the movies I should say I love these synopses i I just someone has to be sitting there and saying to themselves, "Man, I we we got some real real good stuff on our hands here. We're this is going to really play." Now, to be fair, these movies, every single person I've asked, I talked about this a lot to my colleagues at work. And every single person I've spoken to about this has said, "Oh, wow, yeah, my mom, they love these Hallmark movies." You know, I talked to my sister, "Oh yeah, mom loves watching those movies don't they show?" You know, I talked to my cousin, "Oh yeah, Auntie this loves this movie." Yeah, I they they are so popular with middle-aged women. And I don't want to, you know, stereotype. I'm sure there are other demographics that love these movies. But that is clearly the, you know, group they're going for with these movies, right? And and, and admittedly, a lot of the movies, I mean, they focus a lot on women. The w- Women are almost entirely the protagonists of these movies. Young women, uh, you know, in their mid-20s, like my age or so. And I don't know why it seems to play so much with the people who are, you know, middle-aged women. Maybe it reminds them of them. Maybe it reminds them of their daughters or nieces or what ha- grandchildren. I don't know, right? But suffice to say that I think the descriptions are hilarious. And I'm going to read some more because, wow, there's some gems here. Like this one. The Christmas Cottage. Hallmark movies and mysteries. Sounds great already, I think. Still only in her mid-twenties, Lacey Quinn has already given up on love. Her heart's been broken too many times, and now she concentrates on her career as an interior designer in Raleigh, North Carolina. When BFF Ava Callahan asks Lacey to be her maid of honor, she must take on a few responsibilities, including making sure the Callahan family cottage is perfect for the honeymoon. Legend has it that if newlyweds spend their first night there, everlasting love and happiness follow. Lacey isn't sure she buys into that notion. Yeah, no kidding, Lacey. Still, when she finds herself snowed in there with Charlie, Ava's brother, Lacey has to reconsider if the little house may hold some romantic magic after all, especially at Christmas. Wow. You know, I wish I had read that one last week. That one, I think, is the best one I've read so far. That's gold, Jerry. Gold! (laughs) Okay, let's read another one. Let's see... You know, almost all of these movies have Christmas in the title. So That was that one. There's the next one, Christ- The Christmas Train, This Christmas Castle, Engaging Father Christmas. I mean, we know these movies take place at Christmas. Give me a break. Okay, here's one that doesn't have one. Oh, no, this one's even better. When God Winks at You. Oh, my. Okay, this is about true stories demonstrating that God communicates with us, making incredible things happen in our lives every single day. As you read the riveting accounts of everyday and famous people— you will begin to recognize that God winks in your own life, both past and present. Through these tangible signposts from God, we receive personalized messages that reassure us, stop us from worrying, chart our path in life, and help us keep the faith. I mean, you know, I guess... uh, I guess Christmas is about, for some people, certainly not for all, Christmas is about, you know god and 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 religion it's it's named after jesus christ even though of course christmas is not actually jesus's birthday it's a pagan holiday that they just reappropriated but you know a lot of people still associate it with religion which is fine whatever that's fine that's fine if that's what you do but i always kind of figured that god was too busy you know like, like making sure the cosmos run on time then than, you know, than one individual person is doing at Christmas dinner, you know? I don't know. Maybe that's maybe, maybe that's just me being cynical. Probably is. Okay, let's read one more, then we'll move on to some other news. Okay, you know what? I'm a journalist. This one seems to be about a reporter, so we'll read this one. Good Sam. As an LA news reporter, Kate has spent years covering people's worst actions, often on their victims' worst days. She's finally assigned to a story focusing on a wonderful act of generosity. An anonymous Good Samaritan dubbed Good Sam, how clever, has left $100,000 in cash on the front porches of 10 people. Kate tracks down Good Sam, and her exclusive interview with him thrusts her into the national spotlight. Those years of having to dig for the truth have made Kate attuned to when people are lying, and she suspects the man laying claim to the credit is not who he says he is. Searching for answers, Kate unravels the unexpected reason behind the mysterious cash gifts and the true identity of good Sam becomes the biggest surprise story of her career, upending her personal and professional life. I mean, come on, if she does not end up with good Sam, I feel like I'd be cheated. After reading this synopsis, man. I did say that was the last one, but let's read one more just because I just my eye was caught by this one and it sounds pretty interesting. The Sweetest Christmas, starring Lacey Chabert, Leah Coco, and Jonathan Adams. I think Chabert, that's how I'm pronouncing her name, Canadian in me, I'm so sorry. Uh, I believe she was in Mean Girls, I think. But anyways, here's the synopsis. When struggling pastry chef Kylie Watson learns she's made it to the finals of the American gingerbread competition, she thinks her competitive spirit has finally paid off and hopes that publicity will help her jumpstart her new cafe. There's just one problem. The oven she's supposed to use breaks down right before the contest— Determined to enter, she reaches out to Nick Mazanti, her old boyfriend from culinary school who gave up his dream of being a pastry chef to take over his family's pizzeria. Nick allows her to use his industrial pizza oven at night to craft her ambitious gingerbread confections. As the two reminisce about the dreams of their youth, their romance is rekindled. But just as Kylie is on the cusp of taking the grand prize and embracing true love, things get complicated when her ex-boyfriend takes drastic steps to win her back. Kylie realizes she must embrace the Christmas spirit or risk losing both the contest and her new love. I I wonder what does that mean? What how, Okay, let's say she embraces the Christmas spirit. Like I I don't think I I don't necessarily understand. Aren't they both technically her ex-boyfriends? Maybe that's the point. Maybe they're being vague on purpose. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, that's it for Hallmark movies. Well, we'll do it maybe one more time because I legitimately find these incredibly entertaining. Please tell me if you don't. But, you know, I didn't watch a lot of these Hallmark movies as a child, so it almost blows my mind that this is a thing that people actually consume on a regular basis every year. But anyways, that's it for Hallmark movies. Next news item. Well, I guess it wouldn't be a podcast of mine if I didn't talk about Star Wars in some way. I've talked a lot about how I love Star Wars. I have a Star Wars tattoo. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the best. Aren't I the best? Yeah. Yeah, let me just pat myself on the back there. Okay. Uh, um, but I did want to mention this. It is pretty big news. Last week we talked about Obi-Wan Kenobi becoming maybe its own standalone film. I really hope that's the case. This week's Star Wars news is that Colin Trevorrow is out as director of the unnamed episode 9, the conclusion to the Ray and Kylo Ren and Finn trilogy of movies. I like to call them the sequel trilogy. You know, there's a prequel trilogy, the original trilogy, the sequel trilogy. The ST. With Trevorrow out, however... It has to be a director, right? Well, it was announced that J.J. J. Abrams is back in as director of the last movie. And again, the title has not been uh, released, probably at Celebration or... Well, actually, there is no Celebration next year. Just probably at, via a press release next year, maybe at D23, Disney Expo, Disney's Expo, right? But uh, yeah, J.J. Abrams is back in as director. And, you know, a lot of people met this news with... I don't want to say scorn. That's not the right word Or disappointment. I think a lot of people are certainly, what's the word, maybe not, maybe placated is the right word, because, you know, Colin Trevorrow, Trevorrow, man, I'm butchering this guy's last name, but he was kind of ridden, you know, by the fans when he was picked as director, because he really had only directed Jurassic World, which, you know, I enjoyed. It was a fun movie. I mean, I really, it was just about dinosaurs eating people. I mean, anyone would have gone to see that movie. And then he came out with the Book of Henry, which was kind of universally panned. And allegedly, there were some personality conflicts when doing all the things for episode nine. So Kathleen Kennedy rightly canned him. And I guess they brought in someone they felt they were comfortable with. J.J. Abrams obviously did The Force Awakens. He's a big name. He, you know, is. I I don't know if I would call J.J. Abrams an auteur, but it's kind of hard. To class someone like that, I feel like the modern day auteurs would probably be be Wes Anderson or Edgar Wright or someone like that. You know, they have their very distinct visual style. And then, if you take that as your definition, I suppose J.J. Abrams also has a pretty distinct visual style. Um, You know, not going to make a joke about lens flares, but still. But, you know, I think he's a pretty safe choice, if maybe a little uninspired. I heard Ryan Johnson, who obviously is the director of The Last Jedi, coming out this Christmas Uh, was another choice and I mean he's done he's done great in things so far and I I got to meet him at the convention and he seems pretty cool but I mean we haven't seen The Last Jedi yet how could you say that he's gonna he's the best choice for the next movie if you have not seen The Last Jedi I find that mind-blowing to me I I mean maybe it'll be the best movie ever and we'll all say oh yeah that Ryan Johnson should have done it but I mean no one has seen the movie you can't make that judgment To do so would be irresponsible, I think. I mean, Kathleen Kennedy certainly can make that judgment, and I trust her because she's awesome. But you as fans certainly can. I certainly can. I I admit I was hoping you'd be someone like, you know, Patty Jenkins, despite the fact that she's busy with Wonder Woman 2. Or Ava DuVernay. That'd be so cool. You know, they don't have any women directors or, you know, people of color, really, directing these movies. And... I know that sounds. I know a lot of people are fond of tossing around the word "social justice warrior," and I'm not saying that they they should get it because they're women or because they're you know person of color or whatever. I mean, they should get it because they're awesome directors that have proven track records. And I mean, as a person of color myself, I mean, look how many years it took for us to get someone other than Mace Windu or Lando Calrissian as as a person of color in the Star Wars universe. We got Riz Ahmed, who is awesome, but I mean, you know. It took what? It took it until 2016 to get that? I mean, come on. Of course, we have Finn as well, but I would love to see it more behind the scenes. And I was admittedly hoping for it to be one of those guys, women, I should say, not guys. But anyways, J.J. Abrams is a good choice. I mean, he's one of the creators behind uh, one of my favorite TV, no, my favorite TV show of all time. Let me correct myself. The best TV show of all time, Lost. You know, fight me if you want, but uh, it's my favorite. Anyways, I just I just wanted to put that out there. JJ Abrams, director of episode nine, Colin Trevoros out. Let's see what happens. Okay, so I won't take too much time in getting to the next movie. Both of these movies I saw at Tiff. They're both excellent in their own way, certainly some flaws in both. Maybe not so much in the second as this first one. So this first one is The Mountain Between Us with Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. Really entertaining movie. It was classed as a romance disaster movie. I mean, I don't think that's pretty niche. I don't think I've ever heard of a romance disaster movie before, which kind of made me want to go see it. But I mean, if I'm being honest, it's because Idris Elba and I love him. So let's get to the review. Without further ado, The Mountain Between Us. Zayn Malik with the intro song there, Dusk Till Dawn, featuring Sia. Very interesting choice, I thought. It was in the trailer, actually. I'm not actually sure if this music was in the movie itself. Maybe it played over the credits, I think. But, anyways. The Mountain Between Us, I I mentioned already, starring Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. I think there was a brief uh, snippet appearance by Dermot Mulroney at the very end, but, I mean, he he was in the movie for, like, 30 seconds. It wasn't exactly uh, important to the film. Now... The basic premise of this movie is not exactly a spoiler. The Mountain Between Us, the movie takes place on a mountain range almost entirely. So the basic premise is Idris Elba is a neurosurgeon. Kate Winslet is a photographer. They're both trapped because of a gigantic storm that is coming over. I'm not actually sure where they are. I think they're in Denver. Or no, they're trying to get to Denver. But they're somewhere in the Midwest, you know, near some mountains. And in their desperate bid to get back, Kate Winslet for her wedding and Idris Elba to operate on a young child. They take some risks, and one of the risks they take is they meet each other, they decide they can help each other, and they rent a plane from an older Vietnam War veteran who flies planes for cash, and they take off, the guy has a stroke mid-flight, how fortuitous, or I suppose how not fortuitous, unfortuitous, anyways, how unlucky for them, and the guy has a stroke, they crash in the middle of the storm, they did not file a flight plan, the beacon is broken, you know, and... They're suddenly stranded in the middle of this gigantic mountain range with little to no food, no way. Nobody knows where they are, and Kate Winslet has a pretty bad injury. So, I guess the, that's the part of the movie that's the disaster part, right? It's a it's a very interesting concept because within this disaster, I suppose the idea is that. You know this bond that they share in terms of surviving a plane crash and relying on each other to survive—a bond is created, I suppose, right? Instead of something that they share right off the bat, it's created based out of this tragedy or out of this extraordinarily stressful situation, right? And I found it a a very interesting movie. The the and I think the first thing to mention right off the bat is that the chemistry between Winslet and Elba. Are ama- is just, it, It's amazing. It's frankly amazing. That is honestly one of the only reasons I kept watching this movie. And I mean, of course, they're both amazing actors. They're both fantastic. And no one would ever argue that, right? But even the best actors don't necessarily have chemistry with each other, I think. It, it's not a given, you know? And maybe part of it is testing with each other and the, the process that goes into making the movie, certainly. It's not just all of them. The people who create the movie, the casting agents and et cetera, the casting directors, they all have to know that, too. But the chemistry between Idris Elba and Kate Winslet was just brilliant, and I, and I really liked it. That actually made the movie Not, I shouldn't say it made it watchable. It was a good movie, but it, was, it made it that much better, let's say, like that. So if you're a fan of either of those actors, I I heartily recommend you go see this movie, even if romances are not necessarily your thing. It's entertaining. There are quite a lot of jokes, a lot of morbid jokes, but still, a lot of jokes. It was quite funny. A lot of laughter in the audience. And because the movie almost entirely takes place on a mountain range, the vistas of this movie are just absolutely gorgeous. There's so many shots of... like. There's a shot, for example, of Idris Elba, when he's kind of checking out the area. He kind of walks out of the crashed plane... And he takes a look around, and the camera kind of half-circles him, and you can see the mountain range all around him. And it looks so gorgeous. It looks gorgeous, it looks threatening. You know that it's dangerous, as the audience member, because they've crashed here with no food, and Kate Winslet's character has a, a nasty leg injury, so you know it's it's dangerous and foreboding, but you also can appreciate its beauty, and I think that's part of it, right? And of course, that's where the name comes from, The Mountain Between Us. Well... Those are the best parts of the movie, I would say. You know, I mean, the chemistry was great. The visas were gorgeous. The ending was a little predictable, you know? Maybe it's, maybe that's just a flaw in romance movies. I still really liked it. I'm a sucker for those kind of things. But I, once it got to a certain point, I kind of thought to myself, okay, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And guess what? All of them happen, and it's not because I'm a genius. It's because it's extremely predictable. I will say this, though. Watching the movie at TIFF, was a treat because the audience was incredibly engaged. People were so into it. I sat next to this group of three women. I think there was like a mom and her two daughters and the two daughters were my age, maybe a little older mother was in her sixties or, you know, let, 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 let's say that's the general age range. Right. And I sat next to this one girl who was maybe my, my age or a little older and she was so into it. She was so into this movie. I, you know, like the the plane crashes, she gasps and cover her eyes. And then, you know, they joke and everyone's kind of heartily laughing and, you know, they have these tender moments and she has her hand over her mouth and is tearing up. And I'm not to say I was creepily watching her, but, I mean, she was sitting right next to me. It's hard not to notice these things. But, I don't know, it it was that kind of thing I love. People, no, no one was on their phones. Not a single person spoke. No one got up during the movie. I loved it. If I could see a movie like that every time I went to the theater, I would, I would go to the movies way more. I and mean, I already go to the movies pretty damn often as it is. But still, that was pretty cool. I will say that. And that's not, nothing to do with the movie. That and that, It was the case for every movie I saw at TIFF. Three Billboards as well was the case for that, you know? And I think that's just the fact of when you go see movies at TIFF, you're not just going to see it on a lark. Maybe some are, but if you, even if you are going to see it on a lark, you are still a movie lover. You're someone who enjoys going to festivals. You're someone who go, enjoys talking about it in the line. You're someone who... Enjoys watching and talking about it with your friends. And, but you're, I don't know, I, I, that kind of atmosphere is what is why I love going to the movie theater. And it's unfortunate because you don't get that very often. Some people are on their phones, people are talking, blah, blah, blah. But not the case here. And it was, it was a real treat. I had to mention that because I, it really stuck out to me tw- like halfway through the movie. I'm like, wow, no one is saying a single word other than laughing at the parts you're supposed to laugh at. That's, that's a real treat. I, I know I said that a lot, but it's, it, it really sticks out for me. Anyways. To get back to the movie, I mentioned Idris Elba is a neurosurgeon, and Kate Winslet is a photographer, and it's very interesting because a large part of this movie is about trusting your instincts, letting the heart lead sometimes instead of the brain, thinking about things less logically and more from your gut, right? And... Of course, the two characters play into the kind of metaphor of this because Idris Elba is a neurosurgeon. He operates on the brain. And a large part of his character is about thinking things through, thinking things logically. You know, they'll come to find us because the beacon is working. They didn't know it was crushed at the time. But that's why they should stay. And Kate Winslet trusts her instincts. So she kind of recklessly rushes off. He's very headstrong. She goes off on her own with the dog that survived the plane crash. It was the pilot that survives and, you know, becomes a very good part of the movie. But, you know, she rushes off. So she clearly is the heart and the struggle between them, I didn't say struggle, but the conflicts that arise between them have to do with taking chances when they maybe shouldn't. You know, when should the brain override the heart? When should the heart override the brain? And because those two characters are basically represent those two organs, right? It makes for some interesting dialogue, and it makes for some interesting scenes. There's a scene where they come to a cliff, and they they clearly can't go down the cliff, and at the bottom of the cliff is this pool of ice water, and You know, they're in the mountain range. If you jump in, it's probably hypothermia and death within seconds, right? So obviously Idris Elba, I mean, anyone really would say, yeah, we can't go down this way. And Kate Winslet keeps saying, no, we have to. It's our only chance. And that was one of the rare moments where Idris Elba's character kind of wins out because, well, that's a dumbass idea, right? But a a lot of the other parts of the movie really emphasize that Kate Winslet's way, maybe not is the right way, but you should trust your instincts more than thinking something something through logically all the time. Which I think is a valid, at least, something to think about, right? I don't think you necessarily, I mean, if you're standing in line, I do this all the time at the grocery store, you know, you stand in line, you see a shorter line, I think, oh man, yeah, I'm going like, to screw this line. And you go to the next line and then all of a sudden, you know, there's some old woman in the line who, who has to cash a check or some crap or paying with a check or something like that. While well, your, your old line zooms through and you almost, I can almost feel the smirks from the people behind me, oh, Happens a lot. Anyways, off topic, but I find that an interesting part of the movie, trusting your instincts versus thinking things logically, large part of the movie, large metaphor, and I think they did it passably well. I mean, it's not exactly a complicated concept if someone like me can kind of suss it out, right? I will say, for the disaster part of the romance disaster, that means there are some scary parts, and... I'll say this: the scariest parts were not really all that scary. In- like there was a cougar that comes into the plane, the plane crash itself, none of them were all that scary. But I will say the part they were inter- they were made interesting for me because of the people sitting with me. But I wasn't exactly scared. Maybe that's because I saw it a few days ago or a few days prior to the movie. But I don't know. It wasn't that scary? Really, the the really the part that made me jump the uh, the entire movie the most was right at the very end where Idris Elba kind of he steps into a bear trap. That's buried underneath the snow, and it, and you know it's like really digs into his legs, and he freaks out, at, like completely justifiably so. You get a bear trap in your damn leg, but I thought that was interesting because you know there are cougars and there are people falling down cliffs, and you think they're dead at one point and all this stuff, and then bam, he gets like almost gets his leg chopped off by a bear trap and people legitimately jump. People like screamed in the theater. And again, I'm sitting next to this woman and she kind of jumps in her chair and like her, whacks me with her elbow a little bit and it kind of like is shaking. And I'm like, wow, wow, you're really into this movie. And that honestly scared me more than the actual thing in the movie itself. But yeah, whatever. It's part of the movie going experience. She apologized and we had a good laugh about it. But still, it was it was pretty awesome. That part, it made me laugh. I, I, have to admit, I had to stifle a few laughs at the, at the reactions around me. The only really unfortunate part of this movie is that after the survival disaster part of the film ends, after they get back to society, the rest of the movie is pretty formulaic. We get some montages of them trying to get back to their lives, trying to adjust to being a surgeon and a a photographer, which is fine, but it turns at that point into a more rote romance film, and after a while you kind of just expect them to end up together, which they do, I don't think that's a big spoiler, I mean it's a romance movie, right? I think the biggest surprise really was that Idris Elba didn't die after the bear trap thing. But after they move past that part, after you see him wake up in the hospital, like I said, you can kind of telegraph the rest of the movie and it happens like that pretty straightforwardly. But whatever. I mean, that's not a bad thing. It's just you you go into that movie with a certain expectation. The expectation is fulfilled in every way. There are no real surprises. And again, that's not a bad thing. I would be interested to see what the cinema score review for that movie is. Uh, But, you know, if you're... If you're a fan, the bottom line is, if you're a fan of romance movies, if you like either Idris Elba or Kate Winslet, this is the movie for you. It's entertaining. It has some laughs. has some tender moments. You're satisfied at the ending. I mean, I can't really complain about any of it, other than the fact that it's not going to break any barriers here, right? But whatever. You go to the movies to be entertained. So if that's your thing. Go see The Mountain Between Us. So, Mildred Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. Because Three Billboards is not out, because it really only premiered at two film festivals, the Venice Film Festival and TIFF, there's not a lot of music available for this movie. It's it's scored by Carter Burwell, who I think has done a lot of other... Um, Martin McDonough, who is the director and writer of this movie. Uh, he's done a lot of his other movies, like In Bruges, and I think he... Did some other ones as well. Some other famous ones. I think he did Twilight, actually. But it's not. that's not exactly important. The music was great. It was used sparingly in the movie, which means there's not a lot of actual music other than, you know, different parts. And because of that, I decided to use a clip. So that clip I just played was actually from the trailer. And it sets up the movie pretty darn well. It happens in the first probably five, ten minutes of the film. It's not really a spoiler. That's what the movie is about, right? And... You know, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is just a fantastic movie. It so let's let's set it up. I guess a little bit. Francis McDormand is the star, also starring Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, Peter Dinklage, Caleb Landry Jones, a host of people. Abby Cornish, right. And they're all put to use so wonderfully. A brief synopsis of the movie, though. Three billboards. It's at Ebbing, Missouri. Simply, I mean, it's pretty much about the title. Ebbing, Missouri is a small town in the United States, you know, in the southern Midwest, I guess. I'm not sure where it is, but I mean, Missouri is down there somewhere, right? And it's essentially about Frances McDormand's character uh, is a mother of two. She is divorced. And we learn very quickly off the bat that her daughter was raped and killed. And it's a horrible thing. And this has happened seven months prior to the events of the film. And no killer has been caught. The investigation has all been, all but been closed. And, you know, it's not exactly a priority for the police department in this small rural town in Missouri. So what does she do? She, in an effort to... I guess stir up the police department. She rents out three billboards outside the city and puts them up and puts a message on each one that kind of stirs the community up because they feel that the she she specifically names the chief of police who is played by Woody Harrelson, she and the community either supports her or they you know they don't support her and it's very interesting as the the various i guess sides of the community come out for you know with their claws out for her or with support for her and she gets she gets a little headway on it the police starts to make a little more more inroads and start to think about her a little more and it's about the fallout from her putting up these three billboards outside the city so that's really what the movie's about you know it won best screenplay at the Venice Film Festival where it premiered the world premiere and then it's screened at TIFF where I saw it. And it was actually pretty cool. I went to go see it on Sunday, which is the last film, the last day of the festival. And uh, on Sundays, it's announced what the the TIFF Grosch Grosh People's Choice Award is, and that's kind of like the it's not really the best picture, but fans vote for their favorite movie via online or via you know putting your ticket stub into a box at the end of your at the end of your screening, and you know last year was la la land for example that you know slumdog millionaire the king's speech i think there have been a bunch of really you know it's usually a pretty good indicator of oscar success in some fashion not always certainly but usually it is especially the last several years and they announced while i was in line for this movie they announced that three billboards outside ebbing missouri had been had won the people's choice award which is pretty cool because i got these tickets you know a few weeks ago and i asked my friend who uh I went to go, we talked about the whole cinema sc- or the Oscar thing with, we went to go see this movie and it was pretty darn, pretty darn good. Martin McDonough is a director, as I mentioned, he directed In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, as I mentioned. And it's just, the movie is very compassionate in its treatment of these characters, but it's also so, the wit is so acerbic, you know? It's so whiplash awesome, you know, there's so many good parts. There's a lot of cursing in this movie. So many F-bombs are dropped in this movie. And it's just, it deals with issues of race. It deals with issues of sexism. It deals with a lot of fantastic other character performances that we get. And, you know, I'll say this. The performances are all amazing. All of them, especially from the people I mentioned, McDormand, Harrison, Rockwell, Dinklage, but the standout is by far Frances McDormand. You might have seen her in Fargo, in any number of things, really. She's extraordinarily famous. But I, I will say this. If she is not nominated, almost like that Jake Gyllenhaal thing, right? If she is not nominated, I would be shocked. I can't say that she'll, she'll win, because I, I haven't seen all the other performances that people are buzzing about. But I would be absolutely shocked if Frances McDormand was not nominated for an Oscar this year for this movie. It is her best performance, I think. It's layered, it's witty, She's she's so sharp. She shows tragedy and she shows comedy and everything in between. Rage. You know? The characters are all pretty nuanced, which, which is a, a great part of the film. They change and they evolve. So, for example, we see Frances McDormand interact with her ex-husband. I mentioned she was divorced. You know, her husband is now dating a nineteen-year-old. Some of the lines that that nineteen-year-old girl says are just hilarious. There, a lot of the, a lot, every single one of the characters has something funny that they say. The ex-husband, the Frances McDormand's character, her her surviving son, her husband's new girlfriend, the police department, pretty much everyone at the police department. You know, the ad man who sells the billboards, Peter Dinklage, who who is uh who's into Frances McDormand. Everyone has hilarious lines. And it's, that's almost a staple of Martin McDonough's writing. That was the case in In Bruges and in Seven Psychopaths. And a lot of there are some crossover in terms of roles um, from, 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 from some of the more minor actors in in both movies. But it's a fantastic performance from everyone in the film. Fantastically written. I can see why it won Best Screenplay. I would be shocked if it didn't at least get nominated for a number of Oscars. And I could honestly totally see it winning an Oscar uh, this this year, really. I mean, it, 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 it certainly deserves it. Although I say that again without having seen slash heard the other nominations in the in the field you don't want to discount them before you have even seen them certainly but it's certainly deserving of recognition let's say that now i mentioned sam rockwell was in this movie and he i think is one of the best characters in the movie besides francis mcdormand's character because he plays a police officer named dixon and dixon is clearly kind of dumb he is kind of lazy you know he he likes his comfy job as a police officer in this small town. He's a big fish in a small in a small pond, so he thinks. You know he kind of abuses his authority. He's quick to anger. He's a real asshole, really. And Sam Rockwell plays him so perfectly. He plays him as this vengeful, spiteful guy who really will do anything to protect his boss Woody Harrelson, the chief of police, who's being personally held responsible for the lack of any developments on this case with Francis McDormand's daughter. Right, and Woody Harrelson, I'll go on to talk about it in a little bit, but he is a kind, genuinely nice, smart, talented police officer, but you learn that he has a terminal illness, and everyone in town knows it, except for, of course, Sam Rockwell, because he's an idiot. Anyway, so there are a number of scenes in the movie where Sam Rockwell is a real jerk. He's, a, he's mean to... Francis McDormand, he tries to intimidate her. Of course, she won't let that happen. She's real tough and awesome. You know, she, or he rather, arrests her friends to intimidate her. He does all these things, comes around her house, etc., right? And you as the audience member really grow to hate Dixon. You hate that real jerk. He's He's just an asshole, right? And towards the end of the movie, and I don't want to spoil this because this is a major plot development, but... Woody Harrelson's character does something that that pushes the plot forward in a very integral way, and that development changes the the, the movie. You know, it kind of almost does a one hundred and eighty, and it changes Dixon Sam Rockwell's character. It changes Mildred Frances McDormand's character. It changes obviously his wife. It changes his children. It changes everyone. And some people it changes for the worse. Some people it changes for the better. And it's done in a very poignant, compassionate, kind, tender way, despite the very chaotic nature of what he does. And it makes I I think that's why one of the best parts of this movie. Not that what not what he does, but in terms of the pacing of this movie is almost perfect. And I think that's one of many things this movie does right. Because there are a lot of moments that drive the action forward. Without it feeling rushed, you feel like it's earned almost and it's such a fantastic way to watch the movie because you never you, I, you never look at your watch and say oh man how lot much longer do i got to watch this movie you know you never you never look at someone else in the theater you're just sitting there you're enjoying yourself you're feeling like you've been entertained but you're also learning something about a community about you know other people about humans in general and how they react to tragedy and how they react to other people enduring tragedy. And I find it so interesting, really. It's it's fantastic uh, how they develop these characters and how they develop the plot and how it's moved along. And I know it sounds kind of pretentious, but this is easily one of the best movies I've seen this year. Previously, I would probably had said Baby Driver and Get Out and maybe Dunkirk were the best movies I've seen this year. But honestly, right now, I would say Three Billboards is probably, maybe not the best one. I would still say Baby Driver for me is that or Get Out because of the how it relates to me personally. But... Three billboards, probably number three, maybe even number two. Honestly, depending on how I feel, it's a fantastic movie. You know, there are a lot of callbacks in the movie to things that happen later on. I'll, I'll, you know, I think I'll come back to this movie and revisit it a little more once it's out in a, in wide release. It is definitely, it's already been bought for distribution. It's going to be in theaters in the next few months. I'm glad I got to see the tip because it's so fantastic. And if you only listen to this part, I'll say this. Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is one of the most creative and in, in, in innovative movies of the year, not in what it does. It's about a rural community that endures a tragedy and how it deals with that. But what makes it so unique is the style of writing that goes along with each of these characters. Each of them has something valid to say. You always want to listen to what they're saying, even the dumb 19-year-old girlfriend of the the main character's ex-husband. You, know? you want to hear what she has to say because it's funny. You're entertained, but you're also learning something about these other characters based on how they react to what she says. And I think that's a staple, again, I used that word already, but it's, a, it's something that's consistent with the movies that Martin McDonough makes, and he's very, very, very talented at, at making you feel something for these characters while also laughing at them. You can go from laughing at this movie to completely shocked in another beat, and it feels completely natural. It doesn't feel cheap, it feels earned, Right. And I guess that's the biggest thing. It's a, fa- it's just, I can't rave about this movie enough. And I think a lot of people will enjoy it. It strikes me as one of those movies that a lot of people will kind of overlook because it has a long title and, and about something that's a little less conventional. But if you have time to go see this movie, I heartily recommend it. It's very entertaining. And I feel like you'll come out of this movie having been satisfied. You know, if you, and if you like, obviously if you liked Bruges or Seven Psychopaths, Obviously, you'd like this movie, but if you've never seen either of those movies, this is a great place to start. It's a great movie, and I think I I can't recommend it enough. So, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, directed and written by Martin McDonagh. Go see it. The Mountain Between Us and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Those are the two movies we reviewed on the podcast today. Those are two of the three movies I personally got to see at TIFF this year. Like I mentioned in the last episode, I had to give away my tickets to The Carter Effect, to Battle of the Sexes. But from what I hear, those are movies I can probably wait on. The Carter Effect is, of course, a documentary, which is, I think, more centered towards people here in Toronto, certainly, about the Toronto Raptors. Then I will go see that. Battle of the Sexes, I'll probably wait a little to see. But, I mean, Steve Carell, I'm a stone. I mean, I'm going to go see that movie anyways. Let's be real here. The Shape of Water was another one I wanted to go see. But The Disaster Artist was another yet yet another. But, you know what? Even though I didn't get to see them at TIFF, uh, I will see them in theaters, and we'll review them on the podcast for sure. In terms of ones we'll review next in the next two weeks, however, because TIFF is over, we certainly won't be any more kind of arty movies like the ones we talked about today, but I'm aiming to see Kingsman the Golden Circle, and as silly as this may sound, I really want to see the Lego Ninjago movie. I'm not ashamed to admit that I want to see the Lego Ninjago movie. It it sounds like a lot of fun, honestly. It's a, a very entertaining the first one I should say the Lego movie and then the Lego Batman movie, they're both such entertaining properties, and they they treat these 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 toys, which is what they are, as almost these irreverent things that come to life. they have real life and magic to them and how is that? It's because people play with them and maybe maybe I'm biased because I played a lot with Lego as a young as a young child and you know, I still sometimes buy the little Lego sets that are like, you know, 5 to 10 dollars to play with and I have a lot of little minifigures. I don't know, I'm biased, certainly, but it looks like a good like a good time and it looks like it'll be entertaining. Kingsman the Golden Circle is the other one I mentioned. The first Kingsman was a blast. It came out of nowhere and was really entertaining, you know. And while early reviews say that this is pretty much more of the same, I really want to see it because it's almost like a send-up of the spy genre with all the silliness they do, but tongue-in-cheek, but it's still action-packed with great casting and so on and so forth. We get to see the American version of the Kingsmen in this movie, so keep an eye out for those two movies. I won't be changing them as I already have my tickets for them both. I also have my tickets for Thor, Ragnarok, the advanced screening already, so maybe we'll have Mark back in to talk some more Marvel when that movie is out. In any case... As the dulcet tones of Maestro Fresh West play you out, thank you for listening to episode seven, this 2017 Tiff edition of Houston We Have a Podcast. Good night. Maestro, Yo, ain't seen what i seen in this game. Son. Been in this game. A-